You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, April 27th. We've got Ed and Ash standing by, ready to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over the biggest stories in markets, as well as on the coronavirus pandemic. In coronavirus news, globally, we've crossed the threshold for 3 million confirmed cases. And as of today, over 200,000 people have officially died from COVID-19. While this data is grim, the real picture could be even worse. The true number of deaths from coronavirus could actually be 60% higher than we previously thought. An analysis by the FT found 122,000 deaths unaccounted for across 14 countries that may be attributable to the coronavirus. These 14 countries had collectively experienced an increase in all-cause mortality of 49% when compared to their historical average. We mentioned this on Friday with Ecuador's Guayas province reporting a number of deaths seven times higher than the average between March 1st and April 15th. Well, what's happening in Ecuador could be happening everywhere. In the United States, from April to March 4th, over 15,000 excess deaths, that's beyond the historical average, were reported when during the same period, we saw only 8,100 official COVID-19 deaths, leading some to believe that some of these 15,000 excess deaths were in fact due to the coronavirus. Now, obviously we can't attribute all of the excess deaths to COVID-19, but looking beyond the official data to these numbers like all-cause mortality can help scientists and ourselves better understand the true impact of the coronavirus. We will keep you apprised as the story develops. In other news, defaults on credit cards are spiraling out of control. We saw two weeks ago major banks set aside billions in loan loss reserves, but now more niche issuers specializing in credit cards are themselves bracing for severe losses as millions of Americans across the country are requesting deferrals on their credit card payments. Companies like Discover, Synchrony, Capital One, and many other lenders in the card business are extending forgiveness to borrowers, but at the same time, they're tightening lending standards on new credit originations, showing that credit is drying up just as many Americans need it most. But while individuals are struggling to gain access to credit, large companies are gorging themselves on debt as the reach for yield returns to the market. On Friday, Netflix priced a billion dollars in junk bonds oversubscribed by 10 times, and Gap is set to sell two and a quarter billion dollars this week oversubscribed by four times. Over the next three months, $28.5 billion worth of high yield bonds are set to mature. Meanwhile, just this week, $55 billion worth of investment grades are set to issue. It's a veritable credit bonanza. And lastly, Goldman Sachs, in a note on Friday, pointing out something alarming in the stock market, the S&P trading 17% below its highs in February, whereas the median stock in the S&P now trades at 28% from its peak, indicating that there's been a widespread between the winners and losers. Such polarization often forebodes a large equity drawdown if you look historically. Uh, so this is going to be something that we're going to keep track of going forward. Wow, yet another crazy day in markets. There's no one better on earth to make sense of it all than Real Vision's Ash Bennington and our managing editor, Ed Harrison. Guys, 
I want to hear about the stories that are on your radar. What do you make of it all? And how does your analysis affect your macro outlook? Take it away. Thanks, Jack. We're looking into a lot of stories today. It's Monday, April 27th, 2020, just after market close in New York. I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're also joined by Ed Harrison in Washington, D.C. Hello, Ed. Hey, how are you doing, Ash? I'm doing great. It's been a couple of days since we've been together. It's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. And I noticed that you're looking very tight, you know, like you've got the Corona cut in in top form. I'm very happy to see that. Corona cut is in. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ed, busy day again in markets, a lot in the way of news. Uh, What are you looking at? Yeah, so uh, actually, I'm in a fairly bullish uh, frame of mind, to be honest with you. Um, Actually, I wanted to tell you that before I came on, because generally people have been saying that uh, there's a certain uh, bearish bias. But uh, I think, honestly, the thing that's made me somewhat more bullish is about the real economy data um, not data, but rather the prospects in Europe. And this is how I'm looking at it. I'm looking well, at the just that. Let's cover just that first, Ed. As we come yeah, out, yeah. we come out of the the, the day here. The close uh, S and P closing at the twenty eight seventy eight level, uh, at up about one point four seven percent on the day, and up about one point four percent on prior week close. I'm sorry, you were saying Ed, please. Yeah, yeah. So I'm. I was saying that. Yeah, th- that those numbers are as a result of real data coming out uh, that people are looking at good news in a good way. That is, is, is that over the weekend we got a lot of news about the Europeans uh, releasing their lockdowns. And already in the Asian open, we saw Japanese shares, other Asian shares up. It continued into the European market. And then it ended with the the U.S. Even despite oil breaking down, uh, we closed at, at the high. And the reason is, is because what we, we're seeing is, is that a lot of different countries in Europe are opening up to, they're releasing their lockdown. Uh, you're talking about uh, Germany, for sure. You're talking about uh, countries like Austria, the Czech Republic, right across the, the place. C- Croatia, we're seeing a lot of opening, uh, especially in countries that relax their, um, that, that lock down early. They're able to relax their lockdowns early. Let me give you an example, because my daughter, who's studying in Germany right now, she went shopping in Cologne. She was wearing her mask. She was saying to me that, you know, uh, there weren't as many people, given the weather and given the time of year, as you would expect in the in Cologne, in the city center. But uh, there were a lot of people relative to how it is otherwise. It wasn't a ghost town. It was a decent number of people. She didn't go into stores themselves. She was doing what people call Schaufensterbummeln, which is just a window shopping. But nonetheless... Uh, she's she's waiting in. She's she's ready almost. And, you know, I would say in the next few weeks, you might see even more shopping and a resumption of consumption in in Europe. Right. You know, you do a really comprehensive job of covering this in today's credit write downs. You actually have the curves uh, for things like hospitalization uh, in uh, in Europe by country. And you do a very comprehensive job of looking into that if you'd like a deep dive. And also, you uh, you mentioned that word that I can't pronounce in German that means window shop. <laughs> right. Schaufensterbummeln. <laughs> very impressive. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's like what what's the word Schadenfreude that people talk about in German? It's a you know that it's one of those kind of words. Uh, it's not a fake word like Fahrvergnügen. We used to use uh, if you remember the VW commercials where people talk about that. No one says that, by the way, in Germany. It's only it's like a totally made up uh, pitch word. <laughs> yes, I know Schadenfreude though. <laughs> so you know, my thinking is 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 that. You, you go from this, uh, what we're talking about right now, to the potential for a economic uh, a rebirth. And, you know, there are going to be some winners and losers. Uh, one, one set of winners that I would mention is what I would call, um, you know, people who deal in non-cash payments, the visas and the MasterCards of the world uh, in particular, because one of the things that they've noticed is an increasing number of Germans, and Germany is a laggard in terms of using cash, uh, it, it, the, the increasing use of non-cash payments to make transactions. First, you're doing it online, but you're also doing it in order to avoid touch uh, with regard to uh, dealing with day-to-day uh, -day transactions in terms of shopping. So I think that these are the kinds of things that we're going to see. We're not going to see a ramp up uh, back to 100 percent, but you're going to see a slow ramp perhaps by mid-June to the 75-80% level. And so you're going to see the PMIs, especially the service PMIs in Europe, take a rebound. And I think that potentially Q2 for Europe will outperform some of the most dire uh, thinking about, uh, about Europe, because th this is a ramp up within Q2 that we're talking about. Right. It's interesting. It's also interesting the point that you make about non-cash players in Europe, places uh, like Germany, Switzerland, Austria, still very cash-dependent societies, bucking the trend, laggards, as you say. Yeah. And so I think that you know Sweden is a place that is very non-cash-centric already, so you're not going to see that same sort of movement there. But in Germany, they've already noted the banks uh, that, yes, people are paying a lot more with their credit cards and more likely in Germany because they're not a credit society, they're debit cards. Right. Yeah. My Swedish friends laugh that we do anything by uh, personal check. It seems like a vestige of the 19th century to them. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, on a different note, you were asking me what I'm looking at, uh, yeah. and I'll tell you, I think you know the story is, I think it's the one I'm looking at now in the Financial Times, the one that came out talking about, um, what, what is it, uh, excess um, death uh, count, I think it's called, um, yes. excess mortality rate. So uh, I had seen that they looked at the excess mortality rate at, in the FT overall, but they also have looked at it now, apparently, um, the Yale study in the United States. And what they found is, is that the mortality rates that we're uh, told on air are actually lower than the excess mortality rates when you look at trends over, say, the last five years that you would expect for this particular time of year. So, in fact, it's not necessarily because of uh, you know because of a, an infection of COVID nineteen, but it's because of COVID nineteen. They believe that there is a sixty percent underestimation of the uh, of the, the the mortality. Yeah, this is such an, an interesting and also disconcerting story. So you know you try and do the best or most accurate 
COVID death count you can. And then you look at it year over year and try and figure out what the excess mortality is. And it looks like it's, as you say, roughly uh, roughly double. There are all kinds of factors that are playing into that, as you as you alluded to, you know, figuring out whether the disease is being underreported and whether, I think in the, in the article you mentioned in the FT, they made the point that, you know, people who are having chest pains who otherwise would have picked up the phone and dialed 911 to go to the hospital may be dying. It's really difficult to sort these things out, especially in real time. Right. And, you know, I mean, maybe you'll have fewer uh, car accidents uh, as a result. But, you know, what they're trying to do is say, look, this is what it used to look like over the past five years at this particular time of year. So this is what we would expect it to look like this year. And this is the picture that we we're getting. And so when we look at the comparison, we're getting a 60 percent higher number uh, overall. And if that's actually true for these countries that we're talking about and we extrapolate it to the society as a whole, then we're looking at a much greater phenomenon in terms of death as a result of this pandemic. And you know, the question then becomes, how does that play into economic statistics? I think that the answer that I came up with in terms of thinking about it from the European perspective and also from the American perspective is in terms of the d delay and second waves. So when you look at the breakdown within Europe in terms of the countries that are relaxing their lockdowns, uh, you're talking about Denmark, you're talking about Germany, Norway, countries like that. Those are countries that were fairly early to have high testing, to do the lockdowns early, et cetera. The countries like Spain and Italy, who were the laggards, who uh, had the, the blow-ups, those countries are, are leaving later. So my sense is, is, is that to the degree that uh, countries that were laggards and don't have good testing capabilities, Right. do try to attempt to do the exact same thing that the ones who have the testing capability and who probably have the disease under control, they are going to see a second wave that's high. And that's going to be very negative in terms of consumer sentiment. And you are going to see a, a, a sort of a, 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 a nosedive, even though there's a relaxation available. Right. Yeah. And exactly as you suggest, is correlated with all kinds of other things. For example, uh, you know, Chancellor Merkel, the leader of Germany, uh, is a former quantum chemist. Is that what her PhD is in? So these are countries that have very strong traditions of, uh, of science and uh, very strong uh, social welfare systems. And in addition to that, very strong public health systems as well. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at uh, Georgia, which is relaxing right now, you know, the, this brief analysis that I went through just now would tell you that this is a good test case. That is, is Georgia, which we largely believe has not flattened the curve enough. If you look at all these other countries that I'm talking about, the curve has flattened for at least two weeks, sometimes as much as three to four weeks. The, could you expect that the infection rate, especially if the testing isn't enough, is going to decline? Or will we, in two or three weeks, see a resurgence of cases in Georgia and therefore um, you know, a hunkering down of the consumer, even though uh, officially things are open? I think that, you know, it's a good test ground. Unfortunately, they're the guinea pigs, but uh, we're going to see in three to four weeks. Yeah, exactly, exactly, Ed. And, and when we say uh, we're going to have to wait and see, and it depends, uh, obviously that has some pretty grim implications. But I want to pick up on something else that I read in credit write-downs, which is when I looked at those curves, the flattening that you allude to that's happening uh, in, uh, especially in Northern Europe right now, how similar those curves look to the curves that I see here when I look at the New York City 
Health Authority website, and they show the curves for hospitalization and mortality rates. And they seem to be following a very similar pattern. It almost looks like a normal distribution, maybe the data tail a little bit to the left, but you can see that, and that flattening is very dramatic. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking, yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, when you guys could open up because I was thinking about that. I was looking at the Swiss data in particular. What I noticed, I thought it was interesting. If you look at three curves, you look at the uh, the infection rate, the number of new infections per day. You look at the number of deaths per day, and then you look at the hospital usage. What I what you see is is you see this the curve in this bell shape that you were talking about, and then it's shifted over uh, two to three weeks for deaths. So it's like here's the bell curve for a case count, and then death count is here for the bell curve. And then when you look at the hospitalization rate, you see elevation on the on the backside. So it's not even a fat tails phenomenon. It's that you come up like this, and then you sort of flatten out like that. And so what it says is the stress on the system lasts for an incredibly long time. So if you think about Spain, you think about Italy, you think about uh, New York, the question then is, is how quickly can areas like that release into a, a, a lesser lockdown without overwhelming their, their systems again? Yeah, you just hit on what is probably the $20 trillion question here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, what we're talking about here in New York is opening opening up uh, further upstate first around uh, May 15th, potentially, if all goes well, and then gradually easing in downstate. You know, the, the main correlation here that you notice when you eyeball these numbers, when you look at uh, infection rate across the U.S., uh, is that it's, 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 it's clearly correlated to population density. Uh, here in New York City, obviously, some of the highest population density anywhere on the North American continent. We've had the worst time of it. Uh, New Jersey, which is the most populous state in aggregate. Uh, New York State obviously has a lot of farmland and a lot of empty space out to the west. Uh, New Jersey, very difficult time as well because it is the highest population density state in the union. So I think what's going to happen here in New York is we're going to see the test case upstate. Hopefully, you know, we're all we're all obviously uh, all, all wishing and hoping and praying that that goes well. And then we're going to roll into New York City. I'm not optimistic about it opening anytime uh, in the month of May based on what I'm seeing. But, you know, hopefully we'll get uh, we'll get some of the summer in. And, and what what's uh, the word in terms of testing? What kind of testing is how much ramp up in testing do you need for people to feel like, OK, we've got this under control? Yeah, really an open question. There, you know, there are different types of tests. There's antibody testing. There's testing for the disease itself. Uh, these things. This has been one of the most opaque, I would say, aspects of this crisis. You know, there was uh, one of the things that was allegedly driving uh, this uh, this bit of, uh, of of positive sentiment in markets today was the uh, was the rumor that Bloomberg reported that President Trump was going to announce, and he may have already done so before this airs, uh, that we were going to be expanding testing here in the United States. This has been uh, this has been really, I would say not only uh, one of the most opaque aspects of it, but one of the most critical things that we simply have not been able to do enough of to really get our heads around this. Then the additional question uh, that comes up is, you know, the World Health Organization raised over the weekend the possibility that uh, the presence of antibodies may not confer immunity. Uh, and that is, uh, again, very much an open question. Hopefully we'll see more science around that shortly.
Yeah, I mean, overall, for me, though, the, the answer has been that Europe looks like it uh, is going to emerge from this earlier. And as a result, there may be more upside there in terms of the, the economy, also in terms of earnings as a result of that. Uh, since I would say that to the degree that you think things are priced in, they're priced in equally in the U.S. and, and in Europe. The, right. the secondary question I have with is about the market action today oil. You were talking to me. I asked you because I was on a call right before this, and so I couldn't see uh, you know, how oil finished. We saw an absolute hemorrhaging uh, for WTI front month contract. You told me that the Brent contract was trading at, at a 20 handle. Uh, I saw that uh, investing.com was, was quoting the July Brent contract at 23. So it, already people are talking about the front month contract being just an absolute disaster, both WTI and Brent. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, first, just to pick up on the point, when I was reading uh, credit write downs this morning, I, I, I saw the point that you made that you were uh, you were more optimistic about your outlook for the recovery in Europe versus the United States, and I I kind of chuckled to myself and thought, boy, that's not one you hear often, right? That's it's been the reverse case for the last uh, for the last decade, uh, maybe more. Uh, so that's an interesting development, and I guess it really is about the the healthcare system and the response, and and maybe some other factors that we haven't quite analyzed yet. You know, to turn the conversation uh, over to crude, it's been it's been brutal. Uh, you know, the uh, WTI front month contract is trading around 13 bucks a barrel right now. That's off 23% on the day. Uh, Brent crude uh, trading at about 20 bucks, uh, 2011 uh, off. Uh, $1.33, that's uh, 6.5%. So on a percentage basis, the decline in WTI has been roughly triple the decline in Brent. That probably is about the internal dynamics of the market. But, you know, Ed, when I think about this, I think, look, what makes the oil markets different? You have this optimism that appears in U.S. equity markets today, and then you have this disconnect with, with oil markets. And really, there are two things that come to mind. Number one, Fed's not buying oil, right? Right. And, and right. number two, this is a market that's that's physically settled. It's physically delivered, and that enforces a kind of, uh, you know, pragmatism, discipline, whatever you want to call it, uh, in a way that maybe we're just not seeing in the other markets. You know, there's a quote that I read today, uh, Howard Marks, who's always quotable, which is that uh, capitalism without bankruptcy is like Catholicism without hell. <laughs> it's a great quote, uh, but to what extent do you think that there's some validity in that statement? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the, the debate that we were having before I, I started talking bullish uh, stuff on Europe. And the debate is, is, you know, you have price discovery in a market like WTI in particular because of physical delivery, and that's giving you the most dire signal possible. Yet at the same time, you have markets rallying. Where is the disconnect? Why is the disconnect there? Um, is it because the Fed is interfering and it's creating a lack of market signal? Or is it that uh, investors in equity and bonds are looking at different things? Or investors in commodities and, and equities are looking at different things? That, you know, equities are focused on the upside, and as a result, they're looking at best-case scenarios. You know, the best-case scenario is the one that I was presenting now for Europe. That is, is that you relax the lockdowns in late April, early May, and then by mid-June, you're at 80 to 90 percent of capacity from a services side sec, uh, comparison. You know, the Euro PMI, the, Euro, the European PMI for the Eurozone came in at like 13 this past month. So you could immediately go back to a much higher level overnight and, you know, by the end of Q3, if you don't have a second wave, uh, then, you, you know, that's positive. That's bullish for stocks. 
And so I think that's uh, that's where the disconnect comes into play. And right. I would I would believe that sooner about Europe than I would about the United States. Yeah, you know, once again, you've teased out one of the critical questions here, which is how are these markets so disconnected? Why is the sentiment such a broad spread? Why do we hear so many different things? You know, I had a little mini epiphany uh, um, earlier in the day. I was I was doing something in the kitchen. I had one of the other financial news networks on, and I heard a guy who was very bullish uh, about markets. And I came in, and I just stood in front of the television. And we're in the TV business, so we noticed these things. And I noticed this guy was beautifully lighted. His microphone sounded great. The resolution was perfect. And I realized, you know, when we listen to financial networks, we're listening to guys who have studios in their houses. Right? <laughs> I don't say there's anything wrong with that, right? But there's a certain level of skew in the data set when you're listening to people talk about the economy who have television studios in their houses, right? So there are a lot of people in this country, uh, you know, for whom the work switch has just been turned off. It's a binary proposition, right? They can't they can't do their work by going out to the terrace, opening up their MacBook Pro, and dialing into a Zoom meeting. They work in factories. They're construction guys. They're waitresses, waiters. All of these people have just had their income go from X to zero, right? Right. And and that is uh, something that we're still trying to sort out. And maybe you know there's a little bit of bias in the fact that the people who are giving us this news, you know, they have. Uh, they're they're doing they're doing quite well because they're able to work from home. They have different kinds of jobs, and there's a lot of real pain out there. And when I think about the broader economy, that's what I think of. And you know that brings up a, another interesting point. I, I saw one of the things that was uh, interesting to me was that Jeff Gunlack uh, is now uh, is now is now uh, shorting the market at the uh, twenty eight sixty three mm. level, um, and uh, he cites. Uh, you know the magnitude of social unease that's going to happen uh, when 26 million plus people have lost their jobs. Uh, and again, that just points back to the true pain that we're feeling, uh, you know, in this country, and it's not evenly distributed. Well, it goes back to what I was talking about: the European outperformance again. Uh, right. You probably saw this when I was uh, talking in credit write downs. I, I saw an article in uh, a Swiss uh, uh, newspaper over the weekend. I, I was looking for the link as I was writing. I couldn't find it, but I do remember the gist of what they were saying at the time that I heard the article. When I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, this is almost propaganda, uh, you know, because it's it's so pro-European. It was talking about Americans living paycheck to paycheck, and you know, uh, it was basically saying that we're spe- you were spendthrifts, et cetera. But when I, I I digested it and and got off of my you know pro-America thinking, I said there is a lot of of uh, of truth to it. They were talking about Kurzarbeit, which is the ability for a company to say, look, you know, we're only going to have you work. 60% of the hours, we're going to pay you for 60%, and you're going to collect from the state the other 40%. So basically, you're going to be made whole uh, for that period of time. And when this is all over and said and done with, as long as we're in business, you can come back to your job. In fact, you've never left your job. That's not how it works in the United States. So when you're talking about these 26 million people who are filing for unemployment, that's a completely different system than you have in Europe. Moreover, you have your health care connected to that position. So there's a level of uncertainty. There's a level of disconnect that's associated with that. Not only is that negative in terms of the here and now, but over the the longer duration, it's negative. It's negative in terms of your ability to, if you get separated from your job, to find another job. And it's also negative in terms of consumer sentiment, the the precautionary savings that's associated with the uncertainty and the, the distress of, uh, of of losing your employment. 
Yeah, such a critical distinction, especially when healthcare is at stake as it is here in the United States. And I'm with you. It's never easy to read uh, people from other places talking about how America is not perfect. Um, but you know, look, th this this brings up some uh, some challenges, and uh, hopefully, uh, the country is going to come together and respond. Yeah, and and we'll we'll see how how well our system uh, works. But for me, right now, I think that uh, you know we're laggards. Uh, I think that uh, the stocks are priced for optimism, and uh, likely we're going to we're going to leave shutdown later, and there's going to be less of a uh, uptick when that happens because of the the factors that I talk about. So for me, that speaks to the S and P not being uh, an outperformer uh, as we go forward, but more of a laggard. Right. And any final thoughts on these markets after this day? Yeah, I think that uh, you know we're going to get some price discovery uh, coming this week. Uh, the tech stocks, which have been the outperformers for most of this uh, snapback rally, are going to start to release their earnings. We're going to get a sense of you know not only how well they've done during uh, the first quarter, but also what kind of numbers that they can tell us that they're going to project for Q2. And that's going to be a good bellwether for sentiment because they're the ones that we're thinking are the, the darlings who are going to take us. We, we have a, a very narrow breadth in leadership for this rally. And those are the names that are giving us the leadership. If they do not uh, stand up, then you're going to have uh, you know uh, some selling. If they do stand up, I think then uh, you're going to see markets hold up relatively well. Yeah, I think I read a statistic somewhere that Amazon now represents 40% of total consumer discretionary in a particular sector category. I mean, these are pretty interesting. And so it's going to be interesting to see Netflix. It's going to be interesting to see Amazon. It's going to be interesting to think through how this is actually changing the structure of markets. Let's see what happens. You know, uh, I, it, it'll be an exciting week, I think. Yes, un unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, they have been exciting weeks. Great conversation, Ash, and uh, look forward to talking to you again tomorrow about uh, the same and 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 different things. And I look forward to seeing you with uh, you know your uh, maybe I, I might have to follow you and, and go for a second cut to keep it as tight as you're keeping it. You've got to do what we have to do to stay tight, right? Yes, definitely. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.